All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we're going to get started in verse 8 and head our way through to verse 13. It was uh, almost two years ago that the leadership team of Redemption Church got together and said, I think God wants us to do the book of Romans. And so a couple of guys, I think Luke Simmons was one of them, who kind of laid out, did the outline of texts and, and, and dealt with the calendar and where we're going to be at certain times. And, and because we're going to be taking a week off next week to deal with the Sunday Redemption picnic, we're going to be out of order here until we finish uh, Romans, and that's okay. Um, but um, the reason why I say that is I, I don't know who titles these sermons, to, to be fair. Maybe Luke did or, or someone like that. And, and a confession is I never use them. I never even look at a title. Um, but I'm going to use a title today. And the reason why I'm going to use a title is because I don't want anyone leaving here confused on what we said. From the very beginning to the very end, I, would, I just want to press on one particular button. And the button that I think that the Holy Spirit's leading us to talk about today is, is how we are to welcome those who are different than you. And you might have already just checked out and said, well, I do that. No problem. Well, we'll see when we get through this passage. Welcome those who are different than you are. Um, let's read these uh, few verses starting. We're going to back up to verse 7, actually, not verse 8. We're going to pick up verse 7 in context of what Paul has already said about walking or living in harmony with one another. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. God, I pray for your Spirit's presence today in this sermon. I pray you prevent me from saying anything you did not say. And I pray more than anything that your spirit would do the work in the hearts of your church. That we would not sit under this and just add it to the collection of things we know about. But God, that you would add it to our life so that we're transformed and we look like it. God, none of these, none of these things that you call us to or command us to come naturally. They come supernaturally. So we are asking for a supernatural work in our lives, in our hearts, in our church so that we would look like Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let me ask you a question before we get started. And this is kind of self-introspection. You gotta be honest. You don't have to shout it out, but are you self-aware? Do you think you're pretty, pretty certain about yourself? And, and uh, do you know your weaknesses? I mean, a lot, I meet a lot of people who I'm convinced need help to figure out their weaknesses because they're absolutely fantasizing about their life. But, but some people are pretty sharp at being self-aware. I had, a, I had a, one of these moments, and I have them a lot with Neil every week. We, we kind of, I kind of meander in and out of his office all week long. And, uh, and I was, somehow we got on the subject of my past life, um, kind of what I am instinctively. And I have wrestled with this my, my whole life. I have a lot of regrets 
just, I, I just wrestle with a lot of failure in my past, I think. And most of them, almost all of them, are directly connected to my intensity. All, all of them. I went to the dentist this week, and the dentist pointed out how much I grind my teeth, okay? Like, everything in my life is about intensity. And I've made a thousand errors because of it. And Neil, kind enough, said, hey, man, you're a different dude. When I met you 15 years ago and what you are now, totally different. And, and I appreciate, appreciate that. that. That feels good. But, but I still know me. I still can't deny what my tendencies are. And, 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 and I swear, I, I would just venture to say that any time I fail, it's going to be directly connected to that part of me. And I wrestle with that all the time. And the reason why I bring that up is because how would you feel if I was just transparent with you and said, this is the kind of guy, if the Holy Spirit isn't controlling me, this is the kind of guy I will be. And then I tried to explain it away. But the reason why I'm intense like this is because people are idiots. Okay? And they don't know what they're doing or how to do it, and they need, a, they need help. And what if I just justified it and put it off on everyone else, that it was never my issues, that my anger was justified or my intensity was right? You would probably say, as you should, if you cared about me, hey, hey Tim, focus, man. It's you. It's on you. It is you. And people can be idiots, but that doesn't justify the behavior. That's a fair thing you should say, Right? And there's a thousand things, like if we pulled everybody up here and said, okay, now you tell me your story, and we would start with you and say, okay, why does that come out? And, and it would be wrong of me or anybody else to say, hey, justify it, just go explain it away. We are all wrestling with weaknesses or inabilities, and I, the reason why I bring that up is because um, I believe that's precisely what the Holy Spirit's doing in this passage. In this chapter 14, chapter 15, absolute bear you discussion on what it is to be a people who love, okay? I suppose if the list was laid out, we would be able to justify every time we don't. And the reasons why we don't love, I mean, it's, it's so classic. When someone hurts me to say, well, then these passages of love towards others don't apply anymore. Because I'm the one that balances the scales. I make things right. And so I think we're in a passage today um, where the Holy Spirit's pressing on us again. And, and uh, he's making his point about how we, how we treat other people. Now, again, this is just one pixel in the giant mosaic of what it is to love. Starting in verse in chapter 12 to chapter 15, let me just read to you the list of things that we are now accountable to because we have taught them and the Holy Spirit has given them to us. But we are to um, meet other people's needs, according to Paul. We are to show hospitality to others, strangers, as he says it. We are to bless those who persecute us and try to hurt us. We are to associate with the lowly. We are to be submissive to authority, even governing authorities. We are to love people like we love ourselves. We are to be non-judgmental. We are to give up our freedoms for the sake of our brothers. We are to live in harmony with each other. Now, if I had a confessional moment, I would tell you where I'm short. And so, so we, um, we have this wonderful, wonderful story of what it is to love. And now Paul adds one more. And I'm certain we could um, look at this one that's about to be presented to us and say, well, let me tell you why. That's never going to happen. And we have our reasons. And, and Paul's instruction is to a church to be now inclusive, to accept and welcome in people who are different than we are. And yet I hear about it 
And I know about it that we're not necessarily that way all the time. And there's reasons why we choose not to be. I think one of the reasons why we choose to not be inclusive is because of fear. I mean, if I reach out to people not like me, if I really open the doors to strangers, they'll mess it up, right? What if they they have bad habits? What if they hurt me? Or what if they hurt mine? So I'm, I'm afraid of having other people join my ranks because they could just screw it all up. There's a possibility that pride is the reason why we don't accept other people. Because what we think we have is super, super duper special, like unique in the kingdom of God. And for crying out loud, if something messed up, what we got going on that's unique, that would be bad. And so we're a little bit arrogant in how we feel about ourselves and where we are spiritually. I think there's a possibility that there is selfishness in us. Um, we absolutely um, have got the love yourself figured out. We just haven't figured out how to love others like it. And so um, we think our agenda is the most important, and so nothing, come hell or high water, is going to stop it. So we're selfish. There's a possibility that we're apathetic. We just don't care. Like, I'm going to read you imperatives, commands. I know you already know how to respond to the commands of God. If God says it, you do it. If you haven't done it, you confess it as sin, you repent, and you do it, right? That's how we respond to imperatives. We're going to see imperatives here, and some of us just don't care. I I don't care at all about being inclusive. Or there's a possibility that we're ignorant. Small possibility, but still a possibility. We just don't know better. That we've confused some things here, that the things that are important to us and the things that God has done for us supersede the things he commands us to, right? So we can fall in love with the fact that we got a great family and a great kind of a group and a great kind of church and we love what we've got and look at all these great things and, and so we think, we better guard that. That's a good thing, right? Let's guard the good and keep out the bad and I would tell you that's an ignorant position to respond to people who are not like us, okay? So um, I, I got it. There's a thousand reasons why we could come to a text as practical as this one and say, mm, not me. So let me just say that out loud um, so that we can move into this submissive to the spirit and to the scriptures. That if he finds us wanting in any one of these places that we'll just do what he tells us to do with sin. Call it what it is. That's confession. And leave it. And get right. That's, this is not complicated, okay? So I just want to put that out front before we get into it. So um, here is the imperative of today. It is the command to welcome, or you might have a text that says, accept those who are different than you. Look at verse 7. Let me define the word welcome here so we understand what it means. That word, in in just reading it in my ESV, sounds like a weak word. It sounds like if I'm working the guest services door, and I'm just saying, hey, to everybody who comes in, I've, I've, I've accomplished the text, but that's not what this word means. It has way more depth and power to it. It's so much more than just being friendly. The NASB uses the word accept, and even that doesn't get us all the way there to the writer's intent. Here's what the word means. It means to admit someone into your society or fellowship. It's membership. Invite them in. It means to be inclusive at the deepest levels. It means making someone a part of your group or fellowship. Understood? See, it's way more than just being, hey, how are you? I'm welcoming. It's, it's deep. 
By the way, this, this word should be familiar to you because we ran into this word in the beginning of chapter 14 when Paul is talking about how God has welcomed us, right? So don't be judgmental to each other because after all, God has accepted you. He has welcomed you into the family, right? So the same kind of word there that, that Paul has used in the past. So let's just make sure we get the first point of, of this passage. Paul is telling believers in Rome, and us now, 2014, to accept each other, and specifically referring to people who aren't like us. Okay, let me prove that point. Let me talk a little bit about context, about the tensions that existed in this time with this church, and Paul is addressing. This is a season when the gospel was exploding around the world. I mean, it was its genesis. It was happening everywhere. And uh, the world that it found itself in was a very divided place. Maybe not much different than what we have now, but certainly severely uh, divided and it wasn't politically correct. So you knew where the divisions were, okay? And so there were nationalistic divisions, uh, Greeks against the Romans who had taken over the place, right? And the Romans thought they were better than everybody else, and so they looked down on all peoples. You had also uh, relational divisions. You had Jews, and you had Arabs, and you had Greeks, and you had Romans, and hundreds and hundreds of years of tension doesn't sound much different than our world. And by the way, some of those tensions are still going on. It explains everything that's happening in, in the Middle East even now, between the Palestinians and Israel and Hamas. And so so it, those are relational, uh, or, or, uh, racial divisions and tensions, but there's also religious ones that Paul is dealing with at the time. You have the Jews with their hyper-legalistic law that jot and tittled everything in your life, and you had the Greeks who basically lived any way they want to, absolutely free of God and free of thought, and in that sense, no clue, wild behavior. And I, I know we could play that out and go, well, I can see why Paul has to write to a divisive group of people like that, but, but if we're honest with ourselves, this isn't too hard to relate to because we have our own divisions. We have divisions like economic ones, people who are poor don't relate to people who have much, and people who vote left versus vote right, and people who um, are of this color or that color or come from this particular background, this culture or that culture, these particular values, what I'm afraid of or what you're afraid of, right? Or these preferential things or those preferential things, we divide over lots of things as well. So let's just, just confess that honestly. Th this passage isn't like, oh, I've got to really try to translate it because it's in us as well. And I think one of, the, one of the signs that there's way more transforming work the Holy Spirit needs to do in his people is to deal with us and, and how we treat the church and how we behave towards each other. I mean, I, I, I was sitting in my, my wife put like a chair, one of these lazy chairs in my bedroom, and I've got a flat screen TV. It is heaven, okay? And uh, I watch ridiculous amounts of football. But I found myself on Friday watching classic tractor fever. <laughs> if you're not familiar with this, this is on the farm rural network, and it's old men who restore tractors. And I had this like moment like, what am I doing? Not that it was wrong, but my wife is in the, in the living room watching a black and white romantic thingamajig, and I'm in watching classic tractor fever, okay? And it sort of represents how the church is. Everyone treats the church like a consumer who says, okay, I'm going to go to a place that culturally is just like me. 
So there's no adjustments to be made and no tension to overcome. It's just going to be simple, like putting on your pants. It's going to feel good and feel right. There are, there are people who respond to the church like, I'm going to only connect where they appear like me or they value like me or they prefer things like I do. And if you're one of those people, this text is going to be hard for, for you. And I'm going to tell you straight up that if you're one of these people, then you're missing one of the points of the radical nature of the gospel of God, that he saves sinners of all kinds, of all types, of all shapes, of all colors, of all values, and he puts them together under the banner of Jesus Christ and says, God saves people. And if we are dividing based on these superficial things, of which we have and which we've done and which Paul even has to address here, then we're missing the big point of Jesus saves. And the example that he's dealing with, obviously, is these hyper-conservative hyper Jewish backgrounds that only eat certain foods and only certain days do they remember. And then these, and by the way, uh, people who could not even relate to or come in contact to a Gentile pig who would kind of adulterate everything they have. They couldn't even associate with them. And then you have the example of the, of the uh, Gentiles who have ridiculous backgrounds, thousands of different gods, so much so that most of them came out of backgrounds where in order to worship their God, they had to have sex with a temple prostitute. They ate anything they wanted, they did anything they wanted, and they lived however they wanted. And somehow God saves people, religious people who think they need no help, and lost people who don't think they do. And he puts them together in a church. And Paul says, okay, now accept at the deepest level one another. So it gets a little uncomfortable when we start unpacking how this looks. Now, let me just give a little side note to this. Paul is not suggesting that we overlook all the other imperatives of Scripture in order to make people fit, okay? Because the Scriptures, and we used this a couple of weeks ago, are pretty clear and, and pretty blunt when it comes to how we deal with each other in sin. Do you understand? So, for instance, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, there's a brother who refuses to repent of his sin, well, we're not supposed to be inclusive. We're supposed to play the role of a brother. In fact, they can go so far and so bad that we're supposed to not associate with them. You read the text, but that's what it says. So I'm not suggesting that this idea of acceptance overthrows every other particular instruction to this, this rule. But for the most part, if we're not talking about unrepentant sin, Paul is talking about mature accepting the immature. And the weak accepting the strong, the church accepting one another. Now, so I am not misunderstood. Let me just, just punch you in the eye one more time so we can't leave here. If you get one thing today, get this. The undeniable point that Paul is making is that we invite people into our fellowship. And we invite people into our world, into our church, into our group, into our family who are different than us. Strong, weak, clean, dirty, similar, dissimilar. Got it? Okay, oh, you answered. That's good. Now let me show you the reason why. This is where it gets heavy. It gets convicting in a good way. That's what he says. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Um, most writers and commentators would say that that word as is probably better written because because it helps clarify what the intention of, of what Paul is trying to say. Welcome people because you were welcomed is what Paul is, is saying here. So how has, how has Christ accepted you? Think individually now. How has Christ invited you in? 
If you've been around for Romans, you should have like bullet points for this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Christ died while we were yet what? Sinners. He didn't die for you when you figured it out. He didn't die for you when you cleaned it up. He didn't die for you when you were different than everybody else. He died for you and me when we were yet sinners, right? Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we were reconciled with him while we were enemies. So it's not even this description of passivity, like being dead and unresponsive, although that is true. In our deadness, we're at war with God, and yet he reconciled. Romans 3, the passage says we weren't even seeking God. Had no interest. Wasn't on a hunt. I was clueless and helpless and hopeless. That's how the gospel found us, right? And by the way, that reality, those particular passages don't just apply to some. And not just to the dirty. And not just to this person or that person. That condition is everybody's condition, right? That's how God finds us all. Lost and at war. In our sin. And by the way, Jesus lives this. If you want a real, like, convicting moment, just go look at Jesus' life and how he accepted and welcomed sinners. You're overwhelmed with stories. We tell these stories and love them. We just miss the point of how to apply them. Jesus um, reaches out to sinners like the woman in John chapter 8 who was set up by the Pharisees to kind of expose Christ. They bring the catcher at adultery. My guess is they set up all the particulars in order to catch her. But anyway, they bring her into the synagogue where Jesus is teaching, and they throw her down on the floor and say, we caught her. Now what? And they were testing him. How would he respond to this particular woman and her sin? And you know the story. He just kind of bends down. He starts drawing in the dirt. And he stands up, and he says to these religious elite who don't want to accept the sin of another person, just simply say, okay, this is simple. If you're without sin... Throw the first rock. And the text just says, one by one, oldest to the youngest, they just left. And Jesus says to the woman, where's everybody who was ready to condemn you? I guess they all left. Well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus did not exclude himself from this woman. It doesn't say that she was falsely accused of adultery. She was caught in the act. She was guilty as charged. But there was clearly some separation happening between people and the sinner, and Jesus accepts the sinner and says to go be free of your sin. Jesus demonstrates it when he deals with the uh, motley crew of uh, Luke chapter 5. Remember, he is calling men to himself to follow me, and he looks at Matthew, the tax gatherer. This is a guy who was the dregs in, in society at that time. He was a, he was a traitor. He was collecting taxes uh, onto the backs of his own people and getting rich by it. And so in that day and age, if you were a tax gatherer, you were, you were excluded. You're a bad dude. You're a traitor. And so when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, the first thing Matthew thinks is, I want my friends to meet this man. And so he throws a party. And he invites the only people he knows. And the text tells us uh, sinners and notoriously evil people. Like just a, just a bad group of guys. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who have separated themselves from these bad people, by the way, looked at Jesus and said, man, if he was really smart, if he was really a righteous man, he would know the kind of losers he's hanging out with. And yet Jesus had this wonderful moment of accepting people. It's people who had no gospel, who knew no Lord, who didn't know of hope. Jesus demonstrates it when he... Uh, 
has an interruption in his day in Mark chapter 5, the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years in that culture, if you were bleeding or anything like that, it meant you were unclean and anything you touched, any bench you sat on, any person you touched meant they had to be reestablished as, as clean and go through the ceremony of all that. And she, in her, in her hopelessness, just reaches out with the superstition that if I touch his garment, I'll be healed. And, and she does and she is. And, and Jesus doesn't reject her for contaminating him. He simply frees her and heals her and tells her that she's been saved. Uh, the one you're probably really familiar with, which is powerful, and that is that Jesus not only demonstrated in his life, but he taught it in many, many parables. The parable of the prodigal son is a perfect example of this. In, in uh, Luke 15, here's a boy who grew up in the benevolence of a great, great, great dad, and at some moment in his life thought, I don't need him anymore. Now, this is a spiritual illustration of us and God, okay, by the way. And he leaves. He takes his inheritance, which kind of just a, a symbolism of I want my dad dead. I don't really care. I just want what he has. And off to the big city to squander all of his possessions and all of his money. And he spends it all on, on crazy, crazy living. He comes to his senses. He realizes that he's done something stupid and that being with his father was better than anything else in the world, even if he had to change his title from son to slave. And he heads on home to get to his dad. Now, you would think if it was like us, if we were going to deal with this, like we deal with people who struggle or people who are different than us, we would start with a list of expectations and standards. Many dad would say, hey, listen, okay, fix this and don't do that again. And, you know, the list would be big. But all we know from the text is that uh, here in this story, Jesus represents the father. He runs to us. He runs to us and he braces us and he, he accepts us and he welcomes us into his family in spite of all that we've done, in spite of where we've been, in spite of the fact that we all smell like pigs, in spite of the fact that we knew better and he did it anyway. He didn't demand his son to clean himself up before he came home. He didn't say, make a promise, you'd never do it again. He never said, I require you to work your way out of this problem. Give me two years of faithful service in the bunkhouse, and then maybe we'll consider you the son and give you the robe and give you the ring. No, immediately, immediately, the father in the story, who is our savior, calls him son, puts on the robe, gives him the ring, and says, you're mine. Okay? Fully known. And fully accepted. The train wreck's obvious. There's no money. And, and you, son, are willing to admit that you have no right to be here. And yet, and yet, and yet, the most amazing part of the gospel is God brings us in at the highest level of sonship. Fully known and fully accepted. And Paul says, because we've been accepted like that, that's the level of our invitation into relationship. We accept everyone. Not just people that are easy. And not just people who are like us. So let me tell you what's at stake here. Verse 7 goes on. And by the way, what I'm about to say is a qualifying statement for these two first phrases of verse 7. But I'll show it to you. Verse 7 again says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What's at stake God's glory is at stake. First of all, God's glory is on display when he extends grace to sinners who don't deserve it, right? Isn't God made much of when we sit here as people who have no ability and who perpetually wander off and his grace superabounds over us? Doesn't God's glory go on display, church? Of course it does. 
If God simply accepted us based on morality or that we're hard workers or we're disciplined or if God accepted us because we're religious and we're here every Sunday, nobody would recognize it and nobody would care because it would be just like us. Because that's how we operate. That's how we would do it. Earn your way. Pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. You get what you deserve. But that's not how God accepted us, is it? He didn't give us what we deserved. He gave us just the opposite. He gave us grace. And we are accepted by an imputed righteousness and a grace that he gives, right? Go ahead and smile, say amen, whatever, church. You got to get this. That's how we are accepted, okay? So God's glory goes on display when he extends his grace to a people, on full display. And so, therefore, Paul is saying, extend it to others. You love it, extend it. I've got it. I understand some people are difficult. I totally understand. And I understand that some people have issues. And I understand some people are weird. But aren't we all, really? It just depends on the day. I, I get that. And I, and I, know, I, I, I know that they will mess up your great plans and your great ideas. I would just call that divine interruption. God's in charge of that stuff. So God's glory goes on display when he extends grace. But watch this. Same qualifying phrase. God's glory goes, goes on display when we extend it. Okay? Where he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. When you welcome one another, it demonstrates the glory of God. So let me just make this really blunt. When we replicate what we have received, God is made much of. And if we don't, I just want to make sure you leave here with this. You are choosing at that moment not to bring glory to God. I don't care what your reasons are. I don't care what they are. If you make a conscious decision to disobey this command, you're saying, okay, that part of your glory, I'm not going to participate in extending. Okay? Let me move on. Man, we're out of time. Um, don't look at the clock. That's a bad habit. When preachers do that, it stops the sermon almost immediately. So I'm going to rush through this last bit. Um, I apologize. Verses 8 and 9, Paul points to Christ as our model with the Jews and Gentiles as our illustration. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it's written, and he goes on to quote some Old Testament passages. There is an amazing, profound, hugely important phrase here that you have to get. And it's the phrase, Christ became a servant. You have to get this. Paul does not say Jesus became a servant because that would make more logical sense. Jesus is Savior. Of course, Savior would come to give himself, right? Okay, but he says Christ. Christ is the Israel's king. Christ is the Messiah. This one, in their mind, these Jewish people, when they heard Christ came as a servant, their sparks started coming out of their head. Wait a minute. Messiah King, I saw him as the ruler to come and defeat Rome and get us out of that oppression, to sort out the political climate and give us a, 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 a nation. And he said, well, that's not, the Christ. that's not who came. Christ became a servant. He flipped the whole truth on its head. He brought it to a different place. And that's what, this is what it said. Now, just imagine this. In their minds, they thought Christ was going to come and rule now and fix problems now. 
And Paul says, no, he came to serve, which meant totally different than what they expected. In their economy, you served a king. You would meet the king's needs, servants, subjects to a king and his agenda. But this phrase says that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, came for them to meet their needs, to serve them. That's what Jesus said, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And so the, po- the point should be obvious, right? Jesus came to give, he came to serve, and he lay a- laid aside the access to his throne. Uh, I don't have time to read it, but Paul talks about that specifically in Philippians chapter two. You should read it sometime, how um, selfless our Lord was to invite us in. So the model of our accepting is, is Christ. He's the giving, serving one, the accepting one. Now the illustration briefly that Paul refers to is the way that, that God has brought Jew and Gentile together, okay? That's a wonderful illustration. He uses the word circumcised to describe the Jew and obviously the Gentile is, is, is clear there. This is how he does it. So he fulfills the promise and he fulfills the law for a group of religious people who thought their effort was supposed to get it there. He accepts them based on grace, not performance. So when a hyper Jewish, hardworking, religious man tried to work his way there, it wouldn't quite cut it. And the promises that God made were only capable through Christ, and Christ is the answer to all, and God's grace goes on display, and religious people are invited in. Whether they knew it or not, they were invited in. And Jewish people have a different perspective. Christ is the fulfillment of a law they didn't even know. Not one they tried to live, they didn't even have a clue. And he fulfills that law and grants us a righteousness of his own. That is the same conclusion. It's a relationship of grace, not performance. Amen? Amen. So Paul says the fact that God takes this crazy, religious, striving, hardworking people like the Jews and this clueless people that have no idea about God whatsoever, he accepts them both by grace That is the heartbeat of God and the point that Paul's making here of why we accept other people. Because that's what God did. Now, just to make a quick point about these four Old Testament references here, uh, Paul is is dealing with uh, maybe a little bit of pushback from the Jewish community that, wait a minute, wait a minute, really that God is now accepting even them? And so Paul takes us through this tutorial of passages to, to show them that, yes, the Gentiles were always a part of God's gracious plan. And if you look at it, it's interesting, we don't have time to go through it here, but there's a progression to this, to this idea of how God extends himself to the Gentiles. He says in verse 9, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. This is something God does in front of them when they're watching God's people worship or watching God's people respond. It moves then to that they rejoice with his people. That's verse 10. And then verse 11, they worship on their own with the same conclusion for all. Everyone finds their hope in Jesus, the king. Everyone does. There is no difference. Same grace, same savior, same hope, same joy, same salvation for all who would believe, everyone who would believe. So let me just finish with with this thought. We just got done with 30 minutes of singing and taking communion and worshiping a God who accepted us in, and you know, you know if he used, if he used standards like behavior, we wouldn't make it, right? And we're celebrating that, that truth. A bunch of strangers brought in, okay? 
And we love to be included, don't we? So how in the world could we ever, ever not include others? How could we ever say they don't fit or they'll mess it up or whatever? God has invited us in. We invite others in. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this uh, truth. Um, I hope it makes a difference in us as your church. God, I, uh, I love that you have invited us in. I love that there's nothing that can separate us from that. We want to give you all praise and honor and glory today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.